Hi, I'm Jessica Galang, the content editor here at Georgian. Welcome to the Georgian Impact Podcast, where we explore trends that matter to tech startups. To that point, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Web3, an idea for the next generation of the internet based on blockchains. It's getting a lot of buzz right now, if you haven't noticed. A big part of Web3 is giving users control over their own data, including their identity. So today, we're going to break down this concept of self-sovereign identity. Sovereign, a leading organization in this area, explains that SSI is the idea that an individual should own and control their identity without intervening administrative authorities. Digital wallets, for example, could let people prove their identity securely without sharing more data than they want with other parties. What does that mean and why does it matter? What needs to happen to make it happen? We'll be chatting with Matthew Glode, CEO of Ontario-based Northern Block. Northern Block enabled organizations to build digital trust platforms, a key building block for SSI use cases. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's jump right in. For our listeners who may not be familiar, could you explain exactly what is self-sovereign identity? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much for, for having me here today. Uh, I, I really appreciate you having, having me on. And um, hopefully the discussion today will will be a good primer and a good introduction for folks that uh, have been hearing about self-sovereign identity or SSI, the acronym is starting to become more and more tied to self-sovereign identity. But I'll say just off the bat, I think I think people tend to focus a little too much on, on the tech. Myself coming from the Web3 crypto blockchain space, I think it's true in all these spaces where people just tend to get too caught up on the tech. But really what we're talking about when we're talking about self-sovereign identity, it's it's about enabling digital trust, right? Which And digital trust is a subset of digital transformation for organizations. So it's a piece of that, right? So tell me more about what you mean by that. It might make sense just to take a step back and talk about digital trust in, in general. And that in itself is a very high-level idea. So let's just break it down a bit. And so when we talk about trust, Generally speaking, we're going to focus on a relationship between you and I, or a relationship between two parties, two entities. It could be a person, a business, it could be an IoT device, but a relationship between two parties. And so, for example, I have a full-time job at Northern Block, and there's a trust model between Northern Block and its employees like myself. And so I'm talking about the relationship here between two parties. And so... In case of a business-to-business transaction, we typically tend to develop relationships through human interaction, okay? So we find each other's businesses. We're going to either become a supplier or a customer. Then we tend to have some mechanism by which we formalize a relationship. And this mechanism, we call a contract. And contracts are everywhere in life, right? That's one of the key mechanisms we have in society for establishing formal relationships and defining the boundaries of these relationships. And if something goes outside of those boundaries, it's governed by the contract. So that's kind of the first point here. And I'll just shifting the topic a little bit and still under the digital trust umbrella, but shifting a little bit, the concept of personal identity. Personal identity is given to you by the government in a lot of ways. That is in the administrative sense, not like your philosophical sense of being and who you are. Rather, the fact that I could say my name is Matsuri Road and this is my age and so forth, right? These attributes or characteristics of myself have been attested by the government based on their administrative process of registration and their authority to manage all of that. In the same way for businesses, we have business registries and they have a process for creating legal entities. So it's these sources of truth the or these administrative authorities which allow us to enter into contracts. And so 
back before these things that we use every day to do everything we call computers, before these were around, it was difficult to create or recreate these documents, right? Because printing presses were big and expensive and there, there were techniques that could be deployed to prevent fraudulent copies of these happening, like uh, copying a driver's license or, or doing stuff like that. And because everything, like your credentials, your, your documents, your interactions, were all on, in the physical world, they're on the physical edge. And because things happened at paper speed, the risks were kind of low in terms of wide scalability to defraud, right? You didn't have access to kind of one, one source or one database or, or, or and so forth. And then in turn, with the web, the web introduced a new actor to help facilitate these things that we actually don't have the equivalent in the physical world for. So on the web, we have this idea of logging, right? And so there's an intermediary between me and another person or between me and a business that I'm trying to do something with and so forth. And this intermediary, back to the legal structures and the contracts, this new intermediary has no defined role in our legal structures. There's no such thing as the login service in the Business Corporations Act of Ontario, for example. But because we have this login service, there's now sort of this middle person in between our relationships, right? Which has some significant consequences. And one of those consequences is it means that none of my relationships online are confidential, meaning that they're not only known by me and the party I'm trying to interact with, which was true in the physical paper-based world, like if I go to the gym or I rent a car or I go to the doctor or a lawyer or whatever, that interaction happens in private. It's not known, generally speaking. And you know what? If all of my relationships were known, then, you know, I think I'd, <laughs> I'd be very unhappy. I'd for sure be very unhappy. And we call that stuff surveillance. And that would be a, a privacy erosion. So as a result, we don't, we don't have these same conditions on the web, on the internet for privacy. And by the very architectural structure of it all, there must be this login service for me to connect to another party. And by definition, uh, it means it's not confidential. And so often, as we see, the information or data exchanged with the other party is subject to loss. The other party I'm talking about may gather a lot of information about me and they may not protect it well and then it gets stolen at times. And so just wrapping up here, the, the whole concept of digital trust. So there's this trust model that applies to the physical world and transactions and with self-sovereign identity, we're creating the equivalent digitally now. And so we often talk about this thing called the trust triangle. You'll hear it a bunch the more you go deeper into self-sovereign identity. And we use this jargon called issuers, holders, and verifiers. And they, they kind of make up this trust triangle. But you know what? That's exactly how it's mapped in the real world today. And we often play those roles at different times and in various interactions. So the issuer, verifier, and holder are the three entities that make up the trust triangle. Can you give a real-world example of how this might work? To give a simple example, let's use the process of onboarding a corporate customer to a financial institution, basically just trying to open a business account with a bank. And then I use this one because this is a lot of work that we do at Northern Block is around onboarding. So this one's, this one's familiar here. So in, in this case, the trust triangle of the issuer, the holder, and the verifier we're going to say the bank is going to be the verifier, right? Because I'm going to show up at the bank store and I'm going to say, I'd like to open up a business account. And so they'll say, great, give me some things about yourself so I can understand who I'm doing business with or who I'm working with. And so the next step, I'll provide my personal ID that it comes from a reliable source. And this could be a driver's license. It could be my articles of incorporation, et cetera. 
And because uh, they need to verify me, they need to also verify that I have uh, delegated authority from the company. So they start verifying this information and they have a business process to approve it. And when they approve it, they become an issuer. So they've, they've now turned from being a verifier in a specific uh, use case to becoming an issuer. And they'll issue me credentials to a bank account. All the while, me, the individual, and me, the individual representing the corporation, is what's called the holder. So again, we're the issuer, the holder, and the verifier, and we could play all these roles in different scenarios. But the key thing here is you'll note in this model, there's no mention of login or intermediary at all, right? My, my interaction with the bank is a direct and a private one. Just as my relationship with whoever issues me credentials that I'm presenting to the bank is private as well. The bank doesn't know about that relationship, but I'm able to present credentials that I received from another relationship to the bank. And so at no time, the other party knows of the other relationship at all. And so this new digital mechanism that I, I'm, I've been discussing here ensures that the authenticity and the origin of the digital credential being presented to the bank in this use case can be verified and verifiable without a third party being involved. And I can have a direct relationship with the entity I'm interacting with. And so this process of digital trust, of self-sovereign identity, of uh, exchanging verifiable credentials is now all doable digitally. So I, I hope the explanation kind of give a, a good understanding of seeing kind of how things from the physical world were previously not possible to, to do online, but now through verifiable credentials, wallet technology, and blockchain technology, they're doable online. Thanks for that rundown, Matthew. I think it's important to get a sense of these foundational concepts of digital trust to really understand the impact of SSI. So through SSI solutions, you can verify your identity directly with your bank, for example, without third parties knowing about that relationship. But how can a bank trust your information without actually verifying it themselves through traditional methods like driver's licenses? Yeah, good, good question. And I, I started off my explanation kind of talking about people tend to focus uh, too much on the technology. And, and so, so that's why I, I like giving kind of a primer on digital trust to, to just frame the whole thing. But really, it, you need a mechanism to receive credentials from an issuing body. And the most common kind of way that we, we call these are, are wallets or digital wallets, right? And so there's a whole market of digital wallets that are growing. And there's a whole movement of digital wallets that is growing that aligns to emerging standards and principles because we want to make sure that in the sense of this, like we're really trying to promote control and ownership of data in, in the hands of the holder. So for that to be true, we need to move away from the previous model of um, call it often like vendor lock-in where you can't really switch between platforms, right? We kind of see a little bit with, with the whole crypto space how that's possible, right? If you own your private keys, you're able to kind of move your your crypto around. And an easy example of that is just if I have a wallet on one crypto exchange, I could just I could do a transaction and, and send some crypto to another wallet exchange, which I could use on another platform. So I kind of don't have that lock-in anymore. And it's similar in self-sovereign identity. And so I'm able to move my credentials between wallets if I want to, right? The big difference here between, I use the comparison with crypto, but in crypto, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners here are familiar with, your, your crypto is sitting on, on a blockchain, on a distributed ledger, right? And, and you have the private key associated with the public key that's sitting on that ledger, and that allows you to conduct transactions with that address. The architecture in self-sovereign identity is a little different. The way we use a blockchain is a little different in this architecture than crypto. 
So similar to crypto, I have a wallet. In self-sovereign identity, I have a wallet. I'm able to store my crypto in the wallet, right, on the crypto side, although my crypto is still on the blockchain. I'm just storing my private keys. The key difference here that in the self-sovereign identity world, my credentials aren't sitting anywhere because it doesn't make sense for my information to be sitting anywhere. That's what we're trying to get away from, right? And we often talk about blockchains being decentralized. There's certain aspects of blockchains that are decentralized, like the governance of the platform and the operation of, of the nodes and so forth. But a blockchain at the end of the day or, or a DLT is still a central place to store information. So it makes sense for certain use cases like crypto, but for identity, it makes no sense at all. It would be a big privacy issue to want to store my PII and my personal identifiable information on a blockchain. So what do we do? We actually store it locally in a private data store in the wallet. So I'm using my wallet. I have my credentials in there. I have my wallet on my phone. So um, there's plenty of them for smartphones. Northern Block uh, is a solution provider of wallets. We have our own wallet technology as well. So I'm able to use my wallet and I'm able to have my credentials in here. My credentials are sitting on my device itself. No one sees it other than me. No one can access it other than me. No one can transact with it other than me. But they're cryptographically verifiable and they're verifiable through the blockchain infrastructure. So the difference here, I was saying it's a different model with the blockchain and the infrastructure is that when I'm presenting my credentials to a verifier, so in my first example, it was the bank, the blockchain is used as a root of trust. And so what that means uh, to simplify it a bit is when I present my credentials, like I was talking about my driver's license or my articles in corporation to a bank, they'll be able to query the blockchain and they'll be able to find out that what I'm presenting to them, if it's valid or not, or if it's been tampered with or not. Right. And so we store certain information on the blockchain, such as information relating to the issuer of the credentials some revocation information. So it's really used to decentralize the a certificate authority, which is back into the federated identity kind of sense of things when we talk about that intermediary, Mr. Login, sitting in the middle, rather than having Mr. Login or this intermediary, the blockchain is acting as kind of that root of trust, okay? So that's kind of, kind of one, one piece of it. And there's technology on the other side of it too, like um, based on the use case, if I stick with my bank example, when I present a credential from my digital wallet to the bank, I need to build a peer-to-peer -peer connection with the bank. So it's a direct relationship, as I previously described, between myself and the bank. And we each have to have software or agents acting on our behalf that is enabling these peer-to-peer -peer connections. And that's enabling us to exchange credential proofs or issue credentials between each other. The other big piece here, and uh, we're doing a lot of work within uh, the Trust Over IP Foundation here is to build governance models across the technology stack. Because in any decentralized architecture like this, governance is, is half. It's not only technology, the whole governance aspect is half. And I would say the most important aspect here to make anything work. So that's what we're doing at the Trust Over IP to manage business, to manage legal, technology, and social governance frameworks. And so... Just a simple example of, of governance would be here is that well, if I'm presenting a credential to the bank, we all need to be working within a trust framework where the bank trusts the issuer of my credentials, right? If I'm presenting a, a driver's license, they want to have assurance that when they're checking the blockchain, that it was in fact Service Ontario, for example, that issued that driver's license to me. So that's where the governance kind of comes in. And there's multiple layers to that, but um, 
that's an important piece to, to make all of this uh, happen as well. But it all comes down to the user experience at the end of the day. And so it's just people are going to have wallets. People are going to sim- seamlessly connect with each other and exchange credentials, just like they would, uh, you know, similarly, they would be using another wallet app or any phone application. Uh, the user experiences are getting pretty good around that for people. So there's a lot of organizations from governments to nonprofits to the private sector that are trying to build this ecosystem of digital trust. Are there any challenges with interoperability between these different groups? Yeah. So I think, again, I kind of, when I talk about governance and interoperability and all these things, the technology is not the hard part here, right? Like there, there's a lot of really cool innovations that continue to happen that are, are bringing more privacy, respecting and secure interactions for people. But the toughest thing is outside of kind of these self-sovereign identity basics. And so there's a lot of differences, but then a lot of considerations to, to take when, um, when looking to kind of uh, deploy this type of strategy. But there's generic wallets that are out there. Things are early right now. It, it doesn't mean that things can't start going live more and more over like this month and the next month. And things are going live. Like there's tons of activity that's happening in the travel space and, and the vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine uh, verification space. But there's also on the other side, there's a lot of folks that are seeing digital transformation opportunities with digital credential solutions by being able to enable digital trust in their specific ecosystem. We're starting to see a lot more. We're working with a lot of different uh, ecosystems here. Like education space is one of them where it's, it's very easy to understand how digitizing transcripts, for example, or grades could, could really help in uh, people getting jobs or having more accessibility to things. And so there's kind of two streams and that, that's what we're seeing at Northern Block is that on one side, there's the public sector, which is uh, looking to really deploy national digital ID strategies. They all tend to be leaning now, or a lot of them are leaning towards the same stacks that we've built our stuff on, the, the Hyperledger stacks. So Hyperledger in the Aries and, and Ursa. The government's looking to be an issuer of credentials. They're looking to enable more business to happen digitally using these trusted credentials. They're looking to reduce fraud that happens. Uh, they're looking to create value for, for the countries. And there's, there's significant value that could be unlocked by having a trusted digital credential ecosystem in a country. So you have the governments on one side that want to issue and want to enable these ecosystems. And on the other side, you have the private sector. And there's a lot of folks that are they're looking to create their own networks or they're looking to create their own solutions for their ecosystem. And each ecosystem is different. The participants in each ecosystem are different. So you're starting to see a lot more specialized use cases and specialized wallets and platforms for specific use cases that, that are popping up right now. And they're both going to benefit from each other. So the private sector use cases that are taking off once the government start issuing reliable sources for, for government issued IDs, they'll be able to benefit from that. So there's a lot of, a lot of different stuff happening. I can't talk too, too much about a lot of the work we're doing because I think a lot is uh, under non-disclosure, but um, there's some interesting sectors. I, I think the ones that we're seeing the most of just generally right now, like the, the COVID stuff is definitely real. And there's a lot of governments that are, are mandating these, uh, these checks now to get into to restaurants and bars and gyms and stuff like that. So there's a lot of companies building 
solutions for, for that space specifically. Education, as I mentioned, is another space that's big. We're starting to see some more activity in the financial sector. There's also a lot of use cases of using decentralized identity or self-sovereign identity with crypto. Um, we could get into that. That's a whole topic on its own if we're interested in doing that. As we've mentioned, there's a lot that needs to happen to get some of these solutions off the ground, including some participation from governments. What are some of the key challenges in getting SSI solutions into the mainstream? I think having the governments involved is going to create even more momentum than, than exists today. But, but there's, there's other considerations. And I mentioned again, it's things that just fall outside of the technology. So there's a lot of work and alignment that's still happening to enable, for example, interoperability between different protocols or, or different systems. And so that's a big thing. I think there, there's a lot of work happening and we're seeing this with uh, some of the, the larger private sector companies that we're working with. It, it's just the self-sovereign identity aspect is, is one thing, but then how do you scale these systems and, and how do we start kind of figuring out how we could create scalable and sustainable infrastructures beneath these digital identity networks or, or systems, right? Because well, if, if we use the, the vaccine checks again, we, we don't know how, how much this is going to happen. Or even if you use a driver's license, because it's so distributed and it's paper-based, there's no data underneath it. So once this moves digital, how <laughs> how are we going to be able to, to support this? And uh, what benchmarks are we able to use to sort of uh, plan accordingly? The whole concept of onboarding to, to trust networks is a whole area on its own. And we, we spend a lot of time on onboarding, both on the onboarding people and onboarding organizations in a federated kind of identity model or federated system, we'd be relying on kind of a bank saying, yeah, I, I am who I am, or, or, or relying on some reliable party to make a claim. In a peer-to-peer distributed model, how, how does that work? And one of the key things with this whole paradigm switch is that these protocols that we're building are kind of removing the need for APIs. That's a big thing. There's been a lot more flexibility with, with cloud systems, but also with APIs that you can actually just integrate services into your existing systems. But with the self-sovereign identity technology, you don't even need APIs. We, we have messaging protocols that allow people to uh, to kind of connect between each other. And so if someone is able to come into my trust, trust network, I don't have to onboard them through some onboarding process. They could just come in, they could connect with me, and uh, we could build a connection and they could maybe request something. And so how do I manage that? How, how, how do I build trust in, in that way, right? There's challenges in the way we design workflows. Like workflows and self-sovereign identity are, are asynchronous, kind of like a, a, an email that I, I need to do something right now, like issue a credential or request for verification or stuff like that. And not everything's kind of a, a constant flow. So there's work that's being done there too. Pretty much any serious implementation of this technology is also going to require integration to traditional IT. So there's a lot of work we're doing there too, where it's great that we're able to use wallets and credentials to do authentication or access purposes. So for example, I, I, I can log into my online banking platform using my wallet and a credential, but once I actually pass that authentication, we need to be able to work downstream because the enterprises have their, their infrastructure and we need to be able to be compatible with that. So there's a ton of different things. Cybersecurity is another one. Data standardization is another one. Data storage uh, standards, uh, the list goes on. Things are launching right now, but there's still 
there's a lot of considerations like these that need to be taken into place when kind of designing your own solution or your own trust network. And um, you have great network and great connections in the SSI space. So we're lucky to, to be learning from the best in the space. I'm trying to look at this from the perspective of a tech founder. What kind of opportunities could this create? Sure. It is a broad question. There's a lot of stuff that, that we could go into on this too. I, th- I think I'll, I'll focus on two two things here. One, one is just the flexibility that it gives people, and I'll I'll, I'll get into that. Uh, and, and the second thing you kind of mentioned is is the convenience, or also how how this could be a value creating opportunity for for the regular person. And so, if, if I kind of jump jump into that first one, as the world continues to migrate to these digital first solutions, COVID has definitely accelerated that, and Kind of as the common saying goes, software is leading the world. So that's true. Um, it's eating away at every industry. And so when attempting to kind of innovate around identity, it's common for organizations to simply create kind of replicas or replicates of physical identity methods or documents without kind of asking ourselves questions around how the properties of these digital utilities or internets could allow for, for new way of, of doing things. Okay. And so if, if we just use a dated example, although these are, are still used today, if we take the, the fax machine, for example, there were a lot of businesses that were, if we just go in the early days of the internet, there were a lot of businesses that were attempting to disrupt by enabling faxes to be sent over the internet. That was, that was a thing that people were raising money and trying to do rather than understanding, you know, what are we working with here? What are the new tools that we have? What are the standard protocols that now allow us to move bits across the internet that Maybe if I, if I looked at that kind of a first principle approach, I would have likely have opted for a far different approach than the facts on the internet I may have thought about, uh, about chat or email or some of these other things, right? And so if we go back to this digital innovation around identity, so in, in the physical world, trust is often built around government-issued photo IDs. Personal identity is given to you by the government, which is why it explains when I go to a doctor's appointment, they'll identify me through a government-issued health card. And so... The thing is, like, does the same have to be true online? And there's a lot of companies that offer kind of OCR services that allow you to scan your driver's license. You, you may have had to do it before for a banking app or something like that, right? They help companies digitize driver's licenses, passports, do KYC and stuff like that. But in reality, these government IDs that we're talking about, they simply contain identifiers with some legal PII on it. But are these the same kind of identity attributes that need to be at the center of our online interactions, where I think we're seeing big movements towards anonymity and pseudonymity online. As we move towards SSI and decentralized solutions, are we talking about building a brand new internet that people interact with, or should it connect to our already existing infrastructure and networks? I know this is something you've covered in your own SSI Orbit podcast, which I encourage our listeners to check out, but I was hoping you could share some of your thoughts with us here. Yeah, it's important. In any like new product, and anytime you're looking to go to market and trying to enter a space, it's just uh, it, it's always important to not try to you're not going to throw away what's there, right? Like I, I think the benefits that the internet give us, you could have different arguments about if, if they outweigh the negative stuff, but there's so much value on the internet and the ability to access and information and, and create information and build connections and it's caused the tearing down of kind of legal boundaries and it's creating borderless opportunities. And 
it's enabled a whole new economy and it's, it's continuing to grow. I said, software is eating the world. That's not stopping. And so it's important not to look at this as, hey, we're going to kind of tear away the old world and build a new world. I think that's, um, there's a lot of kind of <laughs> crypto anarchists in that space too that seem to have that sentiment, um, which, uh, you know, you, you need all sorts of people and all sorts of different opinions. But really what we're, we're doing here, uh, we're not building a new internet. We're, we're building another layer of digital trust on top of the internet. That's the way it should have been built from the start. And it just, it, it wasn't built that way. Certain innovations weren't there that allowed us to do this and cryptography and distributed ledger technology and stuff like that. So there's a lot of stuff that starts to work in parallel to existing systems. There's the majority of systems today are federated in some way or another. It's not necessarily bad. There's use cases for federated. It doesn't all have to be self-sovereign and decentralized. You should have the opportunity to, to choose what you want. And so we, we could start in parallel, really deploying self-sovereign strategies alongside existing infrastructure. They play together and it's, it's the way to get adoption to in this stuff. It's not to tear down everything. It's just that to run stuff in parallel. And so it's really not about creating a new internet. It's just that, hey, we've come up with this. Now it's, we have the technologies to do it. We have the business, the legal, the, the different governance frameworks to, to be able to do this. We're, we're building now this layer on the internet that is going to enable digital trust, which is uh, not possible on the internet of yesterday. I know we could talk about this forever, but we'll definitely have lots to cover in future podcasts. Matthew, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us on SSI. It's been a really insightful chat. Thanks for having me.